Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. On this episode, my co-host Gabe Pacheco and I talk to Jane F. McAlevey, who has been an organizer in the environmental and labor movements for over 20 years. She's a postdoctoral fellow in the Labor and Work Life Program at Harvard Law School and the author of Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, My Decade Fighting for the Labor Movement. We talk to Jane about her latest book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. Jane even tells us something she has never said before. After the interview, Gabe and I talk about identity politics, the DNC chair race, and some surprisingly racist things Garrison Keillor said. Then we get into some not at all surprisingly racist things that renowned bigot Alan Dershowitz said. We also talk about the role that Obama played in meddling in the election. Turns out, without Obama, Tom Perez never would have run for DNC chair. Because we want to bring you some original reporting on that very issue, I talked to Nomaki Konst, a reporter at the Young Turks, who has done the best and most thorough reporting on the conflicts of interest so rampant at the DNC, and some of the best and most thorough reporting on the DNC chair race, which she covered from the inside. She attended all the meetings. Unlike most reporters covering it, she actually was there. This was going to be Patreon premium content, but it's too important for me not to share part of it with everyone. So we offer a part of our interview with Nomaki Konst on this episode, but to hear the extended interview that we do with her, become Patreon subscribers. To do that, you just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. And major shout out to Kathleen Hancock, an amazing fan who answered the call I put out on Twitter and Facebook asking for a bumper we could use at the beginning and end of our videos that we occasionally make out of our shows. She's extremely talented and donated her talent and time, and we're so grateful. We love our fans, and if anyone wants to tweet their favorite quotes from any episode or turn them into a meme for Instagram, that would be amazing. We're also looking for a new theme song. And if you ever want to reach us or suggest a guest, ask us a question, suggest one of the worst tweets or best tweets that we should be reading, an article you'd like us to analyze, just tweet and use the hashtag KTHelpShow, K-T, as in the letters K and T, not Katie. That's K-T-H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. And that way we'll be able to keep track of your responses. Thanks so much and see you next week. And now, without further ado, is Jane McAlevey talking to us about all the great ideas and insights from her latest book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. I mean, first of all, thank you for reaching out to me to chat. And second of all, the thing about how to engage right now, here's the here's what I think the challenge is. Like if you, and I'm sure you are, and I'm sure your listeners are, uh, sort of like buzzed uh, by all the different various things that are going on, right? There's like a slew of activities, protest this, go to that, call that one, indivisible, go to attack your congressperson in their interim, go to the home thing. Uh, it's like this endless, you know, and then I keep hearing about these interesting meetings that Indivisible's organizing, whatever. So there's like, there's like, a, t- there's like a rush uh, of stuff happening right now. A flurry and of Facebook invites. It's a heady time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a flurry of Facebook invites. And meanwhile, the only reason that we're sort of still standing and not totally freaked out by the flurry of Facebook stuff is 
because thankfully, you know, the, 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 the regime there is having a little hard time getting its stability, you know, focus, which is a good thing for all of us. But, um, you know, I think that, I think, I just, I think, I think a lot of what people are doing, um, is like super well-intentioned, but a lot of it, uh, needs a big, serious redirect. Um, and that's, I think what I'm worried about is that there, there's a tendency for us to love sort of disruption and protests. By the way, I love both of those things. <laughs> spend a lot of my life doing them. But the difference is that I also spend a lot of my life doing things that are far less fun um, and maybe in the moment don't feel as good. Like but that spreadsheets. are really, really, really urgent. Like, you know, like actually running people for local office, whether it's taking over local union branches, which I consider a form of local office, or taking over school boards, or in my neighborhood, working with a whole bunch of neighbors to, in 2015, unelect and run a whole new slate of people for like teeny little local government in my in my neighborhood. And then, you know, showing up at your neighborhood meetings, going to your town council, your city council, whatever. Like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that we have to do that is both less sexy, uh, less fun, um, and, you know, fun matters, right? Like fun has to be a part of our work, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that we have to do that is either counterintuitive or just difficult. Um, and it and it is best done uh, in a solidaristic way with, with our neighbors and friends, right? Like it's all about collective action. The sort of long-term, the long-term issue we've had is that the right – uh, is very, very good at focusing on both creating a bench and seizing local power at the very local level. And we're just terrible at it as a movement. So, you know, that's like in the big picture. Um, and in the narrow confines of like people who are like involved in, you know, trade unions or labor or if they're a member of, you know, a union, I'm increasingly saying like I used to run around and say like, look, we have to occupy bridges, by the way, we have to occupy – you heard me say bridges, like things that actually shut things down as opposed to parks. Um, I'm, I'm getting cynical about parks right now, but like I, I like I've been like I was involved in one of only two actions that shut down the Bay Bridge in the Bay Area right 100 years ago. Um, Act Up did it once, and then we did it in their first Bush's War. Um, so like things like like even what we occupy needs to be more strategic than it is, uh, but also sort of our engagement day to day with. How do we how do we get the patience to get our coworkers and friends together and actually attempt to take over and govern every single little institution that there is? Because if we don't figure out as a left and as a progressive movement how to govern like small g govern at any level, um, we the the prospects for like you know getting to the getting to overthrow the the uh, this regime and the capitalist order is really far away. You know what I mean? So it's like, good, disruption. But everyone's in disruption mode right now. And there's a little bit like Zach Exley's working on, you know, sort of create a whole new Congress. Like there's some stuff out in the ether that I'm hoping that people start connecting to. But um, but for like day-to-day work, you know, just jump online and get invited to one of 20 things and do it. It's just you have to do something else too. That's the point I'm trying to make. So what are some ways that you think that we can get people, our neighbors, activated? Yeah. Um, knock on their doors, for starters. Like part of what part of what I think is so important about the work, and it's part of the distinction I'm trying to argue for in the new book and No Shortcuts, is uh, that organizing fundamentally, like one of the one of the 
one of the concepts to me that's really core behind organizing that's really distinct from mobilizing is that you have to wake up every morning with an intention to spend most of your day engaging people who never talk to you, who are not in your Facebook feed, and who are not in your Twitter feed. Oh, so this is a very anti, anti-techno-utopian anti look at uh, organizing. Like, instead of yeah, finding sorry. a community of like-minded friends uh, in my own Facebook feed rabbit hole, I have to go and talk to strangers and uh, find commonality <laughs> with them in the streets yeah, among different ages, this genders. I mean. and, it's really uh, not as fun, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Although actually it really is. I mean, part uh-huh. of what's interesting, part of what's really fun for me is like if I even just use the local elections that happened in the little wee town I live in out in California, there was this really great moment when a lot of neighbors were just getting really frustrated with, you know, whatever decisions that were being made. Things like no water conservation plan in the height of the California drought, which we forget we had because now we're just under a deluge and, you know, we're getting thrown out of our houses because of, you know, flood watches. But hello, climate change. But anyway, like – the moment where I was saying to people like, okay, everyone, we're sick of having these meetings where we go to the monthly you know, local government meeting, everyone's pissed off and we leave it. So how do we transition to like actually running a slate for office? And people, and, the, and one of the first things I said was, and like neighbors had confidence, like they knew enough about my work that when I said, look, if three good people of you decide to run, we're going to win. Like I'm going to be the unofficial free, you know, coach, right? Like we can do this. So it's like my, my neighborhood's like smaller than my, like running for student body president where I had a universe of 25,000 votes when I was 18 years old. So we can do this guys. But, you know, but the first thing I said was, you're going to have to go and knock on every single door in the neighborhood, and you're going to have to do it several times between now and the election. And like all these wonderful, and I mean really good people, like my neighbors, I got some great neighbors, looked at me and they were like, why would we do that? What do you mean knock on people's doors? That's really uncomfortable. What if they don't want me to knock on their door? What if I'm not supposed to knock on their door? What if they get pissed off about it? What, 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 what? And there's like a thousand barriers to the idea that you actually would actually go talk to people who aren't talking to you. And frankly, of course we did win the election, but besides that, like, and we have a much better local government right now, but it's like, you know, it, and I actually think that three people that we ran for a little local office could actually easily become people who run for higher office in California at some point. They're that good. And the point is, there's great people all over the place, and we're not engaging them. And the people that we really have to engage are like the people we're not engaging. So anywhere in this country, you can, like, decide to map your neighborhood, go to your voter election site, pull down your political precinct just at the neighborhood level, and like figure out what your precinct is and get a few friends together and have a house meeting and plan to start knocking on every door and start getting people into like – one of the things Michael Moore has been talking about, which I don't know if people are doing, but like this idea of creating neighborhood defense committees, right, which could actually go into something else. Which sounds very George Zimmerman, but it isn't. But it wouldn't be doing it like knocking on someone's door and saying, I want to talk about Trump. It's like knocking on someone's door and saying, if we could change three things in this neighborhood tomorrow, what would it be? Because that's the basis of how you do make a relationship with people who you don't know you know so uh like how we how we connect so organizing is like how do you make an intentional plan to talk to people who aren't talking to us and are not in our twitter and facebook and figure it out instagram feeds every day one like that that's the point the concept of organizing is base expansion the concept of mobilizing is like disruption protest you know, and eventually, hopefully, winning elections, right? That's the mobilization side. But, like, the whole point I'm arguing in the book is that our base has been shrinking since the early 1970s. And 
it's time to do base expansion work. And that means, you know, like people think, oh, the Black Panthers party was so cool. Okay, well, that was a nice militant reference I can make to the Panthers. What was their most successful program? It was the free lunch programs that they did, right? When they like went into public schools, like it wasn't marching with guns into the Sacramento or the one day they did it and got every photograph ever. It was like their effective work was really basic neighborhood work, taking care of some really core needs that let them do base expansion work in some key cities in California. So, and elsewhere, you know, when I'm just making the California references. So anyway, to me, it's like <laughs> mobilizing is a piece of our work, but we're doing way too effing much of it. And what we need to do right now is serious base expansion. So if you're, a, if you're in a workplace, you know, of a union, figure out the union that you should have and make the appropriate outreach to your guys' show or somewhere and ask someone and start forming a union. If you have a union and you think it stinks, then the first thing you should do is get together with your coworkers and take it over and like run for that office first. Uh, and then you should be taking over your neighborhoods. And all of it is about expanding our base and getting more people who are not engaging with us, engaged with us. Because like the whole idea of the 99%, it's only it, it, like to go from idea to something substantial means we have to actually have a strategy to engage large numbers of people in the 99%. And right now it's like all we're mostly doing in the left is uh, talking to ourselves and talking to ourselves more effectively and talking to ourselves really efficiently and talking to ourselves in really clever ways and making clever everything. But that's not going to cut it. If I wanted to try to just mock right-wingers and liberals who are, are way more problematic, I can't believe I just said problematic, way more destructive than I used to think, is there any value in that? I'm just trying to figure out roles for podcasters, people who are on Twitter a lot. I'm being somewhat self-deprecating, but... What is the role of that stuff? Because once we answer that question, it kind of gets to the role of media in general. Yeah, and I might have missed the beginning of uh, the beginning of your question. Just got, I, I couldn't hear you that well. But I, I was hoping you would say, Katie, as someone who likes to fight with liberals and uh, reactionaries on Twitter, this is what you can do to support organizing. That's what I was Look, hoping for. Yes, but I, I think there is a role for it, especially for good media, by the way, and especially for funny, smart yes. media. So part of so part part of what I think the role of Twitter and all that stuff is one, beat them, you know, to, let's be effective at it, right, and beat them. But two, um, it, is about it is about keeping some of our troops motivated, right, and excited, because that actually matters. People have to stay motivated. Um, and I wind up watching way more comedy right now than I ever have in my entire life, because at the end of a long day of dealing with, like, what the hell is going on, you know, today it's like, oh, great, they're going to, like, rip up all the stroll streams and then pave pave every stream in America. That's like what I wake up to this morning, right? So, I mean, every day there's like crazy news. So I think there is, I do think that there's a role. There's definitely a role for alternative media and podcasts, et cetera. But I think it'd be good. Like, I think it'd be good to be pointing people towards and pushing people towards, which is just what you're doing. I mean, you call me on the phone here, right? It's like, it's like actually trying to start breaking down for people, like how power works and breaking down for people like that. There are other things that we have to do aside from, um, just winning the Twitter uh, right. fight, although I think it's it's really satisfying, right? It isn't is, it to yeah. like win the Twitter fight? Yeah. But you, your book is all is all about understanding power, because yeah. the only book I've read on power is the Forty Eight Laws of Power, and I need to get a better book on power. <laughs> well, I mean, I I did, the truth is next the whole I will I'll be writing a whole third book just on power. That's that it might get interrupted by Trump. Like if I have to actually yeah. engage in power again, he's apparently messing with my writing plans this year, but no shortcuts. I mean, raising expectations definitely did it. No shortcuts does it more explicitly. It's like, 
the the core thing I'm trying to say about power in the new book is uh, one, it's it's variable, like it's never static, like it's always variable. And I think what our side never understood is like we think we pass a law and then. Like, oh, we just win, we implement it. Like, look how quickly the bathroom ruling's been overturned in terms of transgender rights, right? It's like the minute we pass something, first of all, the right gets to work trying to undo it every single second of every day. And it took them a long time to undo the gains we made in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, which is what they're now just about to completely smash, right? It took them about 40 years to do it because we, when we won stuff in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s because we were – doing deep organizing and doing base expansion and bringing and bringing people who not shallow mobilizing now, right uh jane you you brought this up i've actually had listeners email me and they want to hear about wins in uh you know something uplifting in our shows and uh when when i knew we were going to have you on talking about unions I, what what's a what's a win that we can look back to uh in recent history that the unions have provided for us uh well just well, looking at tangible victories yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's it's in the daily life of, you know, millions of ordinary workers. And the one thing I'll say is what I spent most of 2016 doing, just as an example of a win, of a serious win, is that I went to work with a group called, a union called PASNAP, the Pennsylvania Association of Staff Nurses and Allied Professionals, long title there, it's PASNAP for short. And they're a group of healthcare workers. It's an independent union, which I'm feeling very good about the role of big, growing bigger independent unions right now who are not caught up in the trappings of all the crap going on in the national unions and and they had me they hired me to come in because they had begun to win a bunch of elections where workers were forming new unions in the greater philadelphia area and they were like well we're on a roll and it's getting big and we need some you know like you've run citywide fights before mac levy can you come help and i wound up getting like really i got really interested in how interesting what was happening in 2016 was in philly as a backdrop with the crazy election all that shit happening so wins Seven hospitals worth of workers voted yes to form unions during 2016 with one union. And then I went back in negotiations for the first time since I went to grad school, for God's sakes. And boy, talk about the choice of like, was it fun to be working on my PhD or was it fun to be with 5,600 workers teaching people how to take on their employer and win amazing contracts, control of their lives, self-scheduling, and about a million other things that they just won? The answer is hell yes. So I just had a whole bunch of wins, um, and they're all around us. And it's like uh, part of what we have to do is understand, again, the relationship between what's happening locally and then how that comes up to something bigger. But So the the wins are, to me, endless when we know where to look. And when I, I mean, the campaign in Philadelphia was probably the most successful union drive of all of 2016. No one hardly knows about it yet because, because um, it, because it got, just got overwhelmed by the Trump, you know, disaster, um, and because all of us were too busy doing it to even write about it or stop thinking about it. But it's like there are tremendous wins happening day in and day out right now inside the labor movement at the local level, whether it's the ones I write about in the book, like Chicago Teachers, Smithfield. I mean, I write about some amazing in the new millennium victories in the new book, No Shortcuts. Uh, I was just involved in a huge slew. I mean, the Philadelphia healthcare system just changed because thousands of workers decided to form unions and fight their boss and take strike votes and win amazing contracts. And how much is that under attack with national right to work legislation? Yeah, I mean, look, they're going to introduce right to work. And what my, here's my prediction. I haven't said it publicly, so I'm going to say it right now. They're going to introduce national right to work. And if they're smart, which unfortunately, you know, on some things they are, I think they're going to introduce it uh, only for essentially service-related workers. They're going to exclude 
police, they're going to exclude firefighters, and probably at the rate they're going, they'll exclude the construction and building trades, and they'll just attack uh, all the unions that were otherwise sort of trying to grow uh, in the last 20 years or so that are filled with um, women and women of color and people of color and that are in the service industry. So my prediction is that they'll try and drive it that way. But look, that right to work is not uh, it's both awful and evil, but it's not the end of the world. And part of why I wrote my first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, is because I wanted to chronicle and show that if you had good democratic, you know, if you were like a, if you were like a serious about organizing and serious about empowering ordinary rank and file workers and teaching them how to fight their bosses, we had an amazing union and a right to work state. And by the way, Unite Here has an amazing union in the casinos right now in Nevada. And part of Part of yeah, I, mean, I want to end because I'm gonna have to go for it now. But I want to end on a big win. Yes. Um, part of the win that also got overshadowed in 2016 is that the state of Nevada flipped blue. So all over the country, we saw all these states flipping red. Right, the governorships t- turning red, meaning Republican, right wing, crazy conservative. State legislatures turning red. There's this just sea of red out there. And then what no one, almost no one's even talked about, is the one place that turned blue was the one place where several of us went, at, dug in, and built really serious unions against the odds in a right-to-work state. And it went blue. It's freaking amazing that it's not getting any attention. And the place where we went and invested in serious base building over the course of about a decade flipped blue at the year, the same year that every disastrous thing just happened. So it's like that is a perfect example of why you invest in base building and then you mobilize to seize control of the state. And it happened in Nevada because of the unions in a right-to-work state. You parted the Red Sea, and you're going to part. <laughs> that's our job. We've got to part the Red Sea and then implement some blue. And then also push the blue into actually being blue or red, as in the socialist flower. Oh, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Flip, flip yeah. the whole concept there. Exactly. It's very confusing. I just came back from being in, in Scotland and England and doing some teaching and training and coaching work. And every time I say blue and red, I get all effed up over exactly. there, too. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank, thank you so much, and we would love to have you back on. This was a, a great um, appetizer. Tapas. Uh, tapas. We just had a tapas with, with you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks to all of you. And uh, I hope you have a, you know, despite the hell, the regime and all that stuff, I know the thing that is important is that you can laugh on this show. Yeah. And uh, so it. keep laughing. Keep us thank laughing. You. Okay? Yes. Thank you so much. All right. Great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye, Jane. What a great interview. Oh, that was Even, scrumptious. Yeah. It was like a um, a little, like a, a blitz. Blitzkrieg? Blitzkrieg of, of Jane. Mm-hmm. Um just like an espresso shot. An espresso shot. Or an oh, epi, uh, epi, you know, maybe, I don't, Gabe, you've opened up on the show about your familiarity with EpiPen. Always talking about my, my uh, health issues on the show. So. Without asking me before you disclose. But you already anaf- disclosed it. My anaphylactic shock. Right. Yes. I have it. I suffer from it if I eat uh, walnuts or peanuts, and I have two EpiPens. I thought peanuts were legumes. You're allergic to legumes, I'm allergic to, to all too? that, too. Oh, wow. Not all the legumes. I can eat, like, beans. I like I like a good uh, pinto bean burrito. Nice. Beans. Don't get me started mm-hmm. on beans. A little waiting for Goffman ref. Now, don't get me going on beans, or I'll be jabbering away till the sun comes up. <laughs> beans. Thick, juicy beans. I love beans. Big, fat, hot, juicy beans. <laughs> um... But, uh, but you know, I was gonna say. Now that I've got your ear, there is a story I wouldn't mind sharing with you. Maybe she's more like not just a shot of espresso, but maybe an EpiPen. It's a tall tale that grows taller with each passing year. It's the story of Blaine. Maybe she's really saving Reviving. democracy. 
our lives. Can't have a strong democracy without uh, an educated workforce. Exactly. It's got you know and benefits. Organized. Right. Exactly. And just her telling us this is you know empowering. So. Let's see. A lot going on. What do you think? Do you, you follow the DNC uh, election at all? We got uh, Todd oh, Perez hey, beating I'm super Keith excited. Ellison. First uh, Latino uh, DNC chair. Yeah. Yep. You know, I got a little bit of a problem, as you could probably anticipate. You know, I'm just, I'm just love that. Uh, I like the representation. Right. Of course. But that, you know, it's not about representation. That's why we make fun of identity politics. That's that's our show's policy. But. Um, I mean, wouldn't you, as someone who, aren't you into um, black Muslim uh, representation, even I though mean, you're neither one? They're great, too, you know? Right. It's not my tribe. <laughs> right. Being a, being a Chicano, Latino, right. 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 into right. Right. having right. another Latino yeah. in no. charge. That's uh, the most important thing. Yeah. It was, uh, uh, I, li- <laughs> I like Keith Ellison more. Here's the thing. Do you know what we learned about? We now Why? learned. What? Tell Why? me. Why? Yeah. Tom Perez isn't a bad guy. In fact, one of the reasons I really like Tom Perez... He's a smart guy. Checked out his Wikipedia page. Yeah, he's a smart guy. He's a nice guy. He's a decent guy. Yeah, lives in Tacoma Park. Great neighborhood neighborhood. in D.C. Gabe is uh, Washingtonian. In case you guys haven't figured that out yet. Um, One of the reasons that I really like him, actually, is because... Well, there are two things. One is that he said, um, before the while he was campaigning in Kansas, he said... Bernie, you know, the, the, the election was, was rigged during the primaries against Bernie, and he we can't that? let that happen again. Yes. And- uh, recently, you said that the primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders. And then, of course, he had to walk it back. Later the same day, you said you misspoke when you made those comments. It wasn't a good look for someone admitting that the DNC had done that, although it endeared him to... He should have said that more. Isn't it that endeared just politics, him to, though? That's endeared just... him more to, to the people who are now angry he won. So the other thing I like about him is, you know, you never want a school administrator to want to be a school administrator because then they're kind of awful people. Like you always want a school administrator to be a reluctant school administrator. Like I, when I was a teacher, yeah. the other teachers who were vying for the position of assistant principal exactly. were usually gross. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah. that's how. So it turns out and this is not getting a lot of coverage and I'm not sure why. And Brad Johnson did a great piece on this. Um, it turns out that Obama, President Obama, is the one who nudged nudged yo barrio was pushing barrio him pushed into Tommy the into P the spotlight into running it was his idea and um he also so it was rigged that's the irony right we had we had tom paris saying that we shouldn't rig the primaries then he had to walk it back and then we have obama kind of rigging it because he didn't just tell him to run which he obviously didn't reveal but that's one level of intervention he also made phone calls on his behalf uh-huh. And we knew that Eric Holder had endorsed Eric Holder and Joe Biden had endorsed uh, Tom Perez. Those are some big guns. There's some big guns, right? Oh, don't say guns in front of in front of as if he's here. Eric Holder. What's that controversy about gun running in Mexico? I can't remember what it's called. It's something I I don't. Yeah, exactly. I don't have my a, laptop in front of no, me. No. Oh, dig, burn, burn, because I do. Okay. So Brad Johnson, friend of the show, right? We love Brad. He, we call him Rain Man, climatologist. He has a great piece uh, at Hill Heat. If you go to hillheat.com, it's a science policy legislation action site. And his piece is, said, is titled, Ex-President Barack Obama Orchestrated Paris DNC Chair Victory. And um, basically, he, he cites this article at Politico, which is, because it's Politico, I'm not... I'm not exaggerating this. It actually manages to make the story, which should be about 
Obama intervening in the election of the DNC chair. They managed to make the story about Bernie's failures. It's really, I mean, it's just like you can't make this stuff up. I'm going to quote what I, Edward Isaac Doveray in the political piece, and it says that the distaste for Ellison's approach and profile helped push former President Barack Obama to urge Perez into the race and continue the support all the way through. He called DNC members himself and had aides, including confidant Valerie Jarrett, former political director David Simas, and his White House director of political engagement, Paulette Aniskoff, working members by phone through the votes on Saturday afternoon. Through the votes on Saturday afternoon. Former Vice President Joe Biden, who officially endorsed Perez, also worked the phones with members. Obama and Biden made a four-point pitch, according to a person familiar with the call strategy. Perez is unimpeachable progressive credentials at the Justice and Labor Departments, his ability to bring people together, his management skills, and how he was one of the stars of the Obama administration. Okay, so I don't really blame Perez. He was forced into it. I mean, he wasn't forced, but he, he seems like a better guy. Here's, what, here's my problem with what went down. Ready? First of all, there is some differences. There are some differences. Keith Ellison's background is much more grassroots, and I think he's a... Oh, my God. If we want to have a motivating DNC chair, if you put Keith Ellison talking back-to-back with Tom Perez, it is night and day. I mean, Perez, and this endeared him to me, he literally had no voice when they had that DNC debate that was on television um, last week. Yeah. I mean, it was cute, but Keith Ellison is an amazing speaker. Amazing. And he's really charismatic, and um, he'll motivate people. And you know what? The whole thing about how we can't have a Muslim... A black Muslim uh, chair of the DNC. Who said we can't? Lots of people. Even Garrison Keillor. He said that, they, yeah. that we shouldn't. Yeah, uh, oh, we people shouldn't have elect said that. Muslims? We basically. Is he saying that Muslims shouldn't hold office? Here's what he's saying. He's, I'm wondering. I just need to know. No, I'll show you. What he's saying is that um, Garrison Keillor. Yeah, I'll show you what this he is said. Prayer, Prairie Home Companion. Yeah, hold on. Look it up. Isn't Garrison Islam, Keillor. Islamophobic. Wait, you're gonna see. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, it's not. No, but the way. In all fairness, there is an argument. Here, I'll read it to you. Ready? Yes. Garrison Keillor. In a recent editorial for the Washington Post was. From uh, December, Garrison Keillor says Keith Ellison, lackluster black Muslim, is wrong for DNC. He doesn't say African American Muslim. He says black. Uh, and obviously, he's not doing in the okay quote. A lackluster black Muslim congressman from Minneapolis is a leading candidate for chair of the Democratic National Committee. The person who will need to connect with disaffected workers in Youngston and Pittsburgh. Why not a ballet dancer or a Buddhist monk? Okay, Mr. Keillor. First of all. You're kind of an idiot because what did this one thing show us? Not to it is it's not all about Bernie, but this is. What did the Bernie thing show us? Bernie is a Jewish shouty dude from Brooklyn with a thick Brooklyn accent. Who did better in the Rust Belt? Bernie did great in the Rust Belt. It's it's complex because racism is systemic and endemic, right? But there are people just like Obama was was elected, right? And there are people who are Rus- in the Rust Belt who voted for this guy twice. And he's not Muslim, but or a lot of people thought he was. You know, you have these people who are able to, like Keith Ellison and Obama, they're able to connect to people who may not like the idea of a black Muslim DNC chair, but definitely can be can be won over. First of all, the guy wins elections, right? And also, when you're running for DNC chair, you're not trying to reach out necessarily to Republicans. You're trying to excite the base. Basically, though, what I wrote, I'm writing in this piece for Pace that comes out this week. It's not that Tom Perez is the problem. The problem is that the process by which he was 
elected is a problem. And what what's weird is that his coalition, his backers, really was a coalition of pretty crappy people. So so basically, I mean, what we're saying is that we don't have direct democracy. And in the right. same way that the primary was right. uh, was just a small minority of right. the Democratic parties. And some on the scale from right. De- Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And, and then you've got, uh, when we have the actual election, we've got an electoral college, which, right. again, right. doesn't have right. uh, direct right. democracy. Exactly. And now we're looking at another situation where the uh, DNC wasn't really taking all of its members into consideration and only taking a small elite portion right. of those members uh, who voted for Perez. And, well, and Obama, many... it was out of 400-something. 435 members uh, we're total in voting. And then yeah. it's, um, then he won 235 and Keith won 200. The results are 235 for Mr. Perez and 200 for Mr. Allison. They had, two, had to have two rounds of voting because he didn't get the majority required, Tom Perez. The threshold for victory was 218 votes. And here's another, uh, another thing that someone wrote about Keith Allison. Uh, Jonathan... Wiseman, who's, you know, he's nobody. He's just the deputy Washington editor of the New York Times. And he tweeted. So he's in the media. He's in. uh, He's like a media media. elite. Uh Uh-huh. He's a globalist. Yes, a globalist. Oh, yeah. Wiseman. Yeah. So listen, he tweets, defeated Dems could have tapped Rust Belt populist ahead party. Instead, black Muslim progressive from Minneapolis. Wait, so is Perez a Rust Belt populist? No, I think there. I think he was just in fact, was this when. Let's was there ever a choice to have a no, Rust Belt populist? No, I think this this was in November. So because it sounds like a straw man argument. Well, like, who is this mythical it, it, it Rust is, Belt? And he meant you should have gone with someone who is that. This Bruce Springsteen, like Tim from, Kaine, uh, like he motivated the base. Oh, these people are such idiots. Uh, yeah, he. Uh, and then Chris Hayes. Good. He goes. This is a bad tweet. <laughs> Understatement. Again, we saw Bernie Sanders, Jewy McJewy, uh, and I say there's a Jew, but we saw him doing really well in those areas, right? <laughs> Peter Field tweeted, "Why does the New York Times employ a racist deputy editor?" Good question, right? Oh my God, Becky Bond. We got to read what Becky Bond wrote, and because we were big B- Becky fans, right? She's one of the most frequent frequenters of. Uh, the Katie Halper show, she responded, are you suggesting Keith Ellison is not a populist or just that it doesn't count in D.C. if you're also black? Good, good, good point. Good call, Becky. And if you look at the people who endorsed Tom Perez or thing is, most people didn't endorse Perez. Here's how they endorsed Perez. They smeared Ellison. And so it was a negative campaign. Oh, my God. You know who one of the most vocal um, anti Ellison voices came from? Please tell me. Alan Dershowitz. Oh, he wrote an op-ed threatening to leave the party over Keith Ellison. I'm going to tell you right here in the show, and this is news. If they appoint Keith Ellison to be chairman of the Democratic Party, I will resign my membership in the Democratic Party after 50 years of being a loyal Democrat. But I will not be a member of a party that represents itself through a chairman like Keith Ellison. Really, I thought I, he's a lawyer, right? Yeah, he's a lawyer who... He's a famous lawyer. He calls... He says that Steve Bannon yeah. is not an anti-Semite. You just heard in those remarks there Harry Reid saying, look, there are court filings that say that Stephen Bannon said he doesn't want his kids around Jews, around Jewish kids. You're saying you don't see evidence he's an anti-Semite. What, what is it that you're seeing? Well, first of all, a court filing. It was the testimony of his former wife. Of course it's in a court paper, but he disputed it and contradicted contradicted it and said it never happened. He just 
from what I've heard, wanted to send his kids to a Catholic school, and that was a point of division between him and his former wife. Look, I don't know whether he's an anti-Semite or not. I just don't think you should toss that phrase around casually unless there's overwhelming evidence. I've no, heard no evidence to support that. He has hired Joel Pollack, who worked with him for four years, who's an Orthodox Jew, who wears a kippah, who's married to, uh, 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 has a mixed-race marriage. Um, he uh, has been very positive toward Jews and toward uh, Israel. So I think the evidence that he's an anti-Semite is just not there. Is he supported by bigots? Yes, he is. But to show you an analogy, if Keith Ellison were to be appointed the head of the Democratic National Committee, Hamas would support it, would cheer and yell. Many of his supporters hate Jews, many of the people who would applaud his nomination. But he does think that Desmond Tutu and Stephen Hawking and uh, Doctors Without Borders and Black Lives Matter are all anti-Semitic. Take, for example, Black Lives Matter. I love the concept of Black Lives Matter, but they have become anti-semitic and, and jimmy carter why are they anti-semitic guess why this guy's a major hawk on israel so what does he do he equates all criticism of israel so with uh, anti-semitism he hates max blumenthal obviously. but i thought israel is a country and uh and anti-semitism relates to a religion well not or an ethnic group yes yes exactly and of course a big anti-semitic stereotype is that all jews have this primary loyalty to Israel, right? Like no, I watched this Vice documentary about these uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, Has Hasidim Who don't like Israel, They right? don't like Israel at all. For religious reasons, right? And like then, it's messing uh, up the Messiah the, narrative or something? Yeah, mainstream. Well, no, uh, because uh, there are two laws that uh, they, no killing and no stealing. Aye. So it goes against the Ten Commandments to uh, run a country. Oh, so they shouldn't be involved in any... They don't believe oh. in uh, nationalism. Interesting. So, Let's get them on board. They sound great, these internationalists. I mean, they may I mean, not they let me don't have let... dinner with them when I have my period. But, no, uh, no, the women are like uh, kept in other rooms right. most of the time. And have their heads shaved, which is really weird. I don't know anything about that. I know. Is that true? Yeah. A lot of them do. Yeah, you can see that they're wearing wigs. But... I'm going to watch some YouTube clips later. Yeah, to we find should. Out. we got to educate people. But um, so we got here's the people who are backing Perez, right? Yeah. Barack Obama, who's being a little. Can I say that about him? Especially because I mean, he's not president. You can say that, but I'm not going to say no, that about him. No, you're not co-signing it. He's hanging out with uh, with the Virgin Airlines I know, dude, and skydiving. He's having what a is great it? time. Skydiving, right? That's what he was doing? Yeah, I think so. Probably wind sailing, too. Well, the the problem with Perez is winning. And he, in all fairness, Perez did make him deputy chair. Thank you so much. You know, folks, I would like to begin by making a motion. It's a motion that I have discussed with a good friend, and his name is Keith Ellison. And the motion I would like to make to the body is a motion suspending the rules, if I may, to appoint Keith Ellison deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee. Which I think is a position they made up. And you have to watch their faces, by the way, Gabe. I'll show you a video of it. I wish our viewers could could uh, see it. When uh, I actually did one of those curb your enthusiasm, da -da 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 -da, you know, zoom in on the person's face. I did one of those with Perez when uh, Donna Brazil announced that he had won. Yeah. Keith Ellison and Perez were both like really f like looked so depressed because they both kind of realized like, wow, the Democrats are stupid and uh, Keith's way better for this job. So the people who are pushing for 
Perez, by virtue of smearing Keith Ellison, were the following. Alan Dershowitz, other Islamophobes who were making phone calls. The American Jewish Congress was sent, were sending emails about this to, um, to people who were on the committee of 400-something people voting. And then we have, uh, as we know, LBO, Obama. <laughs> okay, Gabe is really scared. I'm bugging out my eyes right now. I know, now. he is. You you can, we're going to narrate There's all the of, things we do. A lot of people like uh, I know Obama, they do, but you I'm know okay what? I'm okay criticizing him, but I'm not going to defame him by calling him L- LBO. LBO. <laughs> not, move over, LBJ. I'm more, I'm more critical LB. of, his, uh, of his drone policy. Oh, of course. And, but, his, uh, and his mass deportations. Of course, but I have to say on a purely kind of superficial personal level, I was really kind of disgusted that he would do this, that he's so invested in not letting... Because Keith Ellison symbolized for people the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, right? I know, but but Bernie lost. Get over it. Is oh, everything stop. on my Facebook no. feed says no, all no, day no. long. No, I'm over it. Not from you, but from, you know. Well, I'm not over it. But the reason I'm not over it is because it continues. In other words, the reason Obama meddled in the DNC chair election is precisely because he and Valerie Jarrett, who is so annoying. Oh, my God. She's a little troll. Why is she annoying? Because she's, she's like a little troll. And she's just like a s- dishonest and mean to people. Um all right, I'll, t- I'll cut this out. I'll just beep out the names. But they cared enough to pressure a guy to run who wasn't going to run anyway, and he got in late as Keith Ellison was sailing towards, like, a very unified victory. It was like Harry S. Truman getting uh, put in as vice president late in— um, In the game, in the FDR Late in the game, game yeah. Totally unqualified, this haberdasher. Haberdasher, <laughs> former KKK member. I th- Was he? Yeah. I, probably. Yeah. I mean, we can Wikipedia it later. Yeah, we but can. And wiki- what Wikipedia says is gold. It's a gold <laughs> standard. No, but um, the reason that Obama intervened is precisely because they don't want the Bernie wing or they don't even want the perception of the Bernie wing to have won. That's why they did it, right? They see, they want, and they want to hold on to this. This He wants his legacy. Ironically, his legacy should be um, rigging a DNC chair election. But the people who I find most objectionable who were pushing for Perez over Ellison were the people who made the following argument. They're the same. Uh, Perez is just as uh, progressive as Ellison. They, they said they're both establishment candidates and they're equally progressive. Right. That's what my Facebook feed says. And I never, I don't feed the well, trolls. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If that's true, which it's not totally true because grassroots approach versus Obama uh, admin approach, if that's true then the obvious choice is you go with Ellison because all these people making, and by the way, most Hillary, most Clinton people, I'm talking John Lewis, Gloria Steinem, Tammy Duckworth, Randy Weingarten from the teachers union. Yep. She was so invested in Hillary that she tried to get Hillary's name written into the Democratic platform, okay? And everyone was like, are you crazy? And it didn't happen. The point is Saunders, the the head of uh, of AFSME. The point is all these people who were Clinton people moved over. They because they realized. Look, Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer. When you have Ber- from Bernie, when you have from Schumer to Sa- to Sanders, that's a pretty <sighs> unified coalition. That's a pretty broad coalition, right? Mm-hmm. So the people, big tent, big tent, which God forbid we have the people who who didn't want Ellison were fringe. And my favorite argument that they made was, was that they were the same, which is not true. But let's, for argument's sake, let's say, yeah, they are the same, right? You have, according to these people who are kind of hardcore Clintonites, they're not even normal Clintonites because the normal Clintonites went over to Ellison. According to the hardcore Clintonites, they care, these people claim to care about identity politics. And they also are very mad at Bernie people for what they see as a vic- giving a victory to Trump, which they didn't do, right? We didn't do. But 
If you care about winning elections, right? No, you have to blame uh, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. Jill Stein, right. They do that, too. If you care about winning elections, right, and you think that there is a bunch of bratty, as they call it, uh, self-indulgent, petulant, bratty, stubborn, privileged people who practice purity politics. And witchcraft. And witchcraft. You want these people not to leave the party, right? Sorry. You want to give, throw them a bone, give them an olive branch. Like, it makes absolutely no sense unless, because where are the Clinton people, gonna, the hardcore Clintonites going to go? Like, if we see this as hardcore Clintonites versus normal Clintonites and Bernieites, the the hardcore people, are, unless they're going to leave for the Republican Party, and they should leave, good riddance. So it was basically a fuck you to all these progressives, and it was symbolic, so there was absolutely no reason to endorse Perez. And if they were smart about it, why do you think Chuck Schumer did it? You think Chuck Schumer prefers Ellison to Perez? No way. He did it because he knows it's good PR, and it's a good move, and it's good optics. He knows that these people who feel betrayed by the DNC would feel some gratitude or feel at least recognized by this party if he did that. So all these people— Oh, my God. And Al Giordano, I think I got to stop not talking about him. He he calls it the Sanders. Uh, he, he likes referring to this newly defined, newly discovered um, wing of the party, which is the Sanders Schumer wing, which sounds a little anti-Semitic to me. You go with two Jewish senators and it also has the bon- added bonus of being SS. OK. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I just think. It happens to be in a, that this coalition of Paris supporters, what should we call them, Parascrats? I think they happen to be the most disingenuous people in the world, and they're the people that we need to kick out of the party. And they're the ones who oppose party unity, because if you want party unity, you do the thing that makes people who are threatening to leave the party happy, and not Alan Dershowitz, who also threatened to leave the party. Oh, yeah. What better endorsement would you could you have than Alan Dershowitz threatening to leave over Keith Ellison. If that didn't convince you, it's a win-win. We got Keith Ellison and we get that guy out of the party. Who's 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 settled in a case where he was accused of statutory rape, by the way, and who lies a lot. He was even busted lying about a plagiarism accusation. Like he cited the MLA, the manual, whatever, some guide, style guide. Yeah. He lied in the way he cited them. He so, misquoted them. So if people are uh, on the Patreon account, um, oh, we'll yes. post some hit pieces uh, about Alan Dershowitz's yeah. uh, spotty oh, yeah, and yeah. shaky career. And um, and you guys can indulge in that. Right. Hi, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show bonus content that is going to be so good. We can't just save it for people who subscribe to our Patreon. So we're going to give you some right here, and then we're going to add some even more for our subscribers. But I'm very happy to be talking to Nomaki Konst, a reporter who appears on CNN, CBS, all over the place now. The Young Turks is very lucky to have her as a reporter. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. I am very lucky to be with the Young Turks. So Nomi, you are one of the probably most relentless, intrepid reporters to cover the DNC chair election. And the thing that's really cool about Nomi is that she's very, like, I'm nerdy about certain things like history and stuff, but I have no idea how finance stuff works. And it's cool because Nomi really does. And it's also extra cool because you're a woman, so that makes it even cooler. And we shy away from that stuff, or we're pressured to shy away from it. So I want to know kind of the, the biggest, most important points that you learned, the biggest takeaways from covering the the race. And then we'll get to kind of the finance stuff that you exposed. You know, I just finished up a story, and it's going to come out uh, Saturday, March 4th. The story is really about the voting process of the DNC. And, you know, this was an election that was all about 
reforming the party. It was it wouldn't have taken place if Debbie Wasserman Schultz hadn't had uh, a scandal and had to step down during the convention, right before the convention. Uh, if there weren't WikiLeaks exposed that there were members of the DNC working with uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign. And, and now, I mean, I hate to jump ahead to finance, but now it's very easy to see that because there were, uh, you know, several consultants who were on the books for both the DNC and Hillary Clinton for America simultaneously during the primaries. Uh, and those are people that are advising both. Um, you know, traditionally that would be called a conflict of interest. <laughs> but somehow I think the biggest takeaway for me is that conflicts of interest are all over the place with the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and, you know, the way that they conducted their vote uh, really leads me to believe that this, this – uh, campaign, which they build as the most transparent election in the history of the Democratic Party, was uh, really more about rebranding the party as being transparent, uh, but the voting was not done transparently, right. and you'll see that in my story. I didn't even know about that. I mean, I didn't know about all these consultants overlapping on both. Did that get a lot of coverage? And we're talking about the primary now, not the DNC chair race, which we'll get to in a second, but they're clearly related. Right. Did you cover that? Where Where can people find out more about that? I mean, that really comes out later in FEC filings, and that's sort of the, one of the tricks that consultants use. Uh, they even used it with the DNC chair race, that sometimes consultants don't get paid until the end of the month mm. when the race is over. Uh, they don't bill. They don't bill all at the top. They bill all at the bottom, meaning like later on in the process. Uh, but actually for, for HFA... HFA, of course, is Hillary for America. Which started its account in January of 2015, well before Secretary Clinton announced in June. HFA was working with several of the largest uh, consulting group, you know, groups of, of the Democratic Party that work with the Democratic Party, and simultaneously. And in that, you know, and the reality is, is that a lot of reporters don't know how to comb through FEC filings. Right. And it is a process. And I, you know, I happen to be someone who's kind of figured it out over time. There's lots of weird tricks, the way that that they don't show up sometimes, uh, contracts don't show up sometimes um, under expenditures or gifts. Uh, you have to kind of do the reverse lookup, and that's something I figured out over time. So what does that mean, the reverse lookup? So, actually, I'll give you a really good example. Right. And this, I did, I did cover during the uh, Hillary, the, the primary. Remember when the conversation about Hillary Clinton getting speeches all the way up until uh, two weeks before she announced she was running for president, people were really like, why do you need to do that all the way up until mm. you, you decided to run? Mm -hmm. Well, as I just mentioned, HFA had set up in January of 2015. So it, it officially launched, brought on consultants um, in 2000, January of 2015, and she didn't announce until June of 2015. Yet, she started lending her campaign money immediately after she announced. And when you looked at how much money, uh, based on tax returns, she had made the previous year, the majority of the money, almost 90% of the money she had made was off of those speeches. Mm. So when the money wasn't coming into her account, the HFA account, at the rates I assume um, they were expecting, she started lending two hundred fifty to $300,000 a month to her campaign. Meaning the speeches, this is just connecting the dots, uh, based on her income from the previous year, the speeches were essentially paying for her campaign. 
complicated and wonky, sorry. No, it's good. I mean, we have to have people explain this. You talked about new branding, right? Rebranding of, of the DNC. And what's so fascinating to me, and I actually wrote a piece about this in Pace, what's really fascinating to me is that... Oh, thank you. They didn't even rebrand it. Like, the rebranding would have been giving it what would have been letting Keith Ellison win, right? That's the thing that progressives would have already been annoyed about. They would have been like, oh, this is the DNC co-opting the progressive wing, the progressive movement. But they didn't even do that. Obama, and we'll get into that in a second, and care so much about their self-interest and their legacy and, and, like, not letting the Bernie wing of the party even seem to, on a symbolic level, win anything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little, a little hesitant to use the, the term the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Because yes. Because Pete Ellison actually had, you know, definitely had all of the Bernie people. Uh, no Bernie people went to Tom Perez's race. Exactly. But he also had the support of, you know, some of the quote-unquote establishment folks. The Schumer. way that I broke Schumer, down Schumer, like Schumer, John Lewis, uh, all the Hillary people, right? Schumer, John Lewis, Randy Weingarten, Dolores Huerta, Gloria Steinem, Tammy Duckworth, yeah. right? But what's I, when I say that, I don't mean – it's a bit complicated and meta, but I think it's important. Yeah. When, I, when I say the Bernie wing, um, and it's extremely important that we acknowledge that Keith had a unified – he had party unity behind him, right? And you had these fringe yeah. people who sabotaged it. But when I say that, I, I mean that I think that someone like John Lewis or Chuck Schumer, they realize it's politically expedient – to embrace and invite in progressives who felt disaffected and disenchanted and betrayed by the DNC, right? But I think that when Obama rejected, you know, when Obama, and we'll get into that in a second, when Obama goes in there and and uh, helps essentially rig it and meddle in the DNC chair, he, I think, sees it as a Bernie thing or as a, as a non-Obama administration victory that he doesn't want to give it. Well, well, let's not forget that... Um President Obama, he, he vocally, and members of him, his administration were vocally upset about Bernie Sanders criticizing him, uh, you know, after he took office and made some, some crucial mistakes, like bringing on, you know, Tim Geithner to share the economic reform rather than someone like a Joe Stiglitz, who right. has, you know, just as much knowledge, if not more knowledge, on how to, to transform an economy. Uh, so there's a real fundamental difference of understanding of how economics works, how progressivism works. You know, President Obama was closing up to Michelle Rhee and charter schools. You know, this is not the, the progressive that I think, you know, he wants himself to be seen as historically. And, and Bernie Sanders is a thorn uh, to him. He just, you know, he can't shake off the guy. And, and not only that, Bernie Sanders is a reminder of the failures mm. that Obama made overseeing the DNC. Like, you know, a thousand seats lost in eight years. Right. That is the worst. The Democratic Party, just let me very, very quick. The Democratic Party is at its weakest, weakest point since 1920. Wow. And there's only one person who oversaw that party where the buck stopped at him, and that was President Obama. Right. And when President Obama, you know, integrated OFA, which a lot of DNC members, this is, this is the point that I'm trying to make about the establishment, most of the DNC members have a lot of complaints about OFA. Just so listeners know, that's Obama yeah. for America. Became Organizing for America. Sorry, Organizing for America. Internalized within the DNC. Right. Yeah. They have a lot of complaints about the money going straight to the national level. And a lot of these DNC members uh, who are, who've been in their seats for decades, uh, most of them have, a lot of them, yes, they voted for Hillary Clinton for a variety of reasons. Many are actually progressive. I think that there's a union wing within the Democratic Party that is incredibly powerful, vocal, and progressive and supportive Keith Ellison. Mm. I think that there's a professional wing within the Democratic Party that relies on contracts 
And these are the lobbyists. These are the people who have contracts with the Democratic Party. These are the ones who have been making money off of the last eight years to, to ten years off of Hillary Clinton and, and President Obama's presidential runs. And they have been running the Democratic National Committee. They are all over the place when you look at the staffing of the DNC. So, you know, President Obama pushing for Tom Perez uh, was an opportunity for these consultants to go and support Tom Perez, which they did, by the way. They threw fundraisers for him. They, you know, endorsed him. They, you know, they, they really wanted him to stay in office so that the status quo could remain the same. I think the issue is that when the vote actually took place, and, and you know, Tom Perez did not win overwhelmingly. You know, he, I think, thought he was going to win on the first ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, it by walked by one vote. And then it went to the second ballot, and it was very clear that uh, the remaining votes were going to go to Steve Ellison, and that's where the deal started to be made. President Obama and Vice President Biden, Valerie Jarrett, and other staffers were calling members that they thought that they could move on the floor. They were calling those members on the floor. And sorry, can you just explain to listeners, can you just put in the kind of chronological um, context? So you're saying that the first round, which was Saturday morning? By the time voting happened, it was like, you know, new. Okay, so there's healthy speeches. Sure. So there's so there's a noonish vote, right? And there the majority required was two hundred and nine. I can't remember. Um, four, Sorry. Fourteen point five. So it's based on how many DNC members are voting. Yeah. So four hundred and forty-two were voting that day either by proxy, meaning if they couldn't make it to Washington or to uh, Atlanta, uh, they had somebody there voting on their behalf with very specific instructions, or um, they were in the room. And so the funny thing is, it's really important. The first ballot, there were 20 people that were not in the room that just decided they weren't going to vote. They didn't abstain. They just decided they weren't going to vote. And so the number was decreased. The threshold was decreased. So it was supposed to be 221.5 um, abroad. Those abroad have to vote. They have half a vote. Mm, so it. Um, it ended up going down. The threshold was 214.5, and Tom Perez got 213.5, and uh, and and, and Keith Ellison got 200, Sally Boynton Brown got 12, and Pete Buttigieg, who had already stepped out of the race, got one vote. Who did so that? Tom Perez lost. Uh, he's the South Bend, Indiana. No, man. I mean, no, I mean, I'm saying who the who would vote for who? What what kind of vindictive, vengeful person votes for someone who would step down? Anyway, so that's neither here nor there. We well, don't you know, and I'm sure Tom Perez was annoyed at that person, too, yeah. because that vote could have cost, you know. Um, but, you know, most of the votes were expected. Sally's votes were supposed to go to, all supposed to go to Keith Ellison, and um, the majority of Pete's votes, which had already voted, uh, were supposed to go to Keith Ellison as well. So, of course, they were scrambling in between votes. And that's when, surprise, surprise, the DNC announces they're not releasing the vote uh, records. And this is what my story is about, because these these campaigns had invested in data operations that would run the numbers, meaning they would know which members voted for whom in between the ballots, so they could go out there and whip the vote. And the DNC doesn't release them. And they say, oh, we don't have the time. That's ultimately what their excuse was. That's ridiculous. You know, bring in 10 staffers, start counting, don't do three hours of speeches in the morning. You know, this is an old Tammany Hall trick. Delay, delay, delay the vote, and then rush the vote. Well, they delay because they don't want they they want to use the excuse that they don't have any more time later. Oh. They actually have to count all the votes. They weren't going to record the vote. So record they have a tally of the vote, but a recorded vote on based on their bylaws says that the vote was not 
conducted on a secret ballot. And all of the uh, DNC members did have to, you know, initially it was supposed to be an electronic ballot, their backup was a paper ballot. That's fine, whatever. But they're now, you know, their, their excuse now is, well, we didn't have time to count all the paper ballots. Well, you know, you've been planning this thing for four months. It's not like they've never uh, had paper ballots in the past. Uh, you know, they knew that was going to be their backup, and then suddenly, you, you know, the excuses were all over the place. Uh, first, it was that, you know, the, the recorded ballot was actually, you know, public ballot is a tally ballot. And then I got back to the DNC communications team, and I said, well, we have a tallied secret ballot in the United States. Uh, that's actually not, that's not a public ballot, that's a secret ballot. So are you going to release the name? Because there were two reasons. You know, this, this bylaw was voted on by a rules committee. And it was with the intent and spirit so that the DNC candidates could whip votes in between ballots. Um, the candidates want to have access to the DNC members' votes in between the ballots so they can go after after uh, the members that they think that they have to whip. Right. And if you don't have those names, you're just literally – it's all based on assumption and, and, and what the DNC members are saying to you, which could quite, quite very well be bullshit. Right. Um, I mean, I, I know my – that's why the Associated Press putting out these tallies is ridiculous because, you know, everybody's numbers were different. Right. All the way up until the vote. Right. Um, and then the second thing, the DNC not releasing these names with their votes uh, publicly, you know, there's been a lot of reasons why, uh, and I'll give you their reasons, but, you know, they said, okay, it's going to take us two weeks to release it, and then we're putting it in the National Archives. Well, then they finally got back yesterday and said, for any candidates – and not all candidates knew about this, by the way. I actually, just by interviewing people, I found out. Um, candidates who had requested them finally got word back from the DNC saying, you can schedule an appointment at the Democratic National Headquarters in D.C. You have one hour to look at the ballot, and you can only bring three people in the room. No cameras, no phone. And now, their excuse is... What is their excuse? Become a Patreon supporter of The Katie Helper Show. Go to patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show and you will hear the ridiculous excuse of the Democratic Party and also the rest of our interview with Nomaki Konst.